You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Brendan Babenzine is the former creative director of Supreme, the founder of responsibly made menswear brand Noah, the creative director of J. Crew Men's, and someone whose role in streetwear very much precedes the style's infiltration of the luxury sector. Today, things like skate and surf culture are nothing less than prevalent in contemporary fashion, even if neither sport or lifestyle are practiced by the wear. But for him, they're very much the world he grew up in. Hearing his take on value in the creation of culture as much as the design elements that dress it up, we walk away from this episode rethinking our own values and the metrics that inform our life choices. This is Brendan Babenzine, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Brendan Babenzine, obviously we like to set the stage and look back before we jump ahead. So what was the life of young Brendan like and where did this tumble down the rabbit hole of creativity and fashion first begin? <laughs> oh, wow. That's seemingly an easy question, but not really an easy question. It's funny because I'm in the middle of it right now. I've been visited by an old friend who was one of the people that I kind of like emerged into this world with. Someone I met when I was around 13 right when I was starting my job at a surf skate shop in Long Island. So it coincided like the business side was the job. And then the culture side was this group of people I was spending time with. And this particular individual is named Don Busweiler. He was the founder of a brand called Pervert five or six years after we met. But we came up together and we're skating together and learning about music and everything else. He's now re-entered my life. He's been gone for 20-something years because as he was becoming famous in the clothing world, he decided to give up everything he owned and like split. Oh, wow. And like has been living like Jesus on the street ever since. Wow. Yeah, I didn't see him for 20 something years and then he showed up a few years ago and now we see each other about once a year. He like comes through New York and visits old friends and stuff and we just spend time together. But we were unpacking all of his history yesterday with someone else talking about what it was like in you know the 80s if you were into skateboarding alternative music and growing up in Long Island, but having access to New York City, reliving all these moments. It was um, it was fun. <laughs> like to answer the question quite simply, it was really fun. And it was in this really unique window of time where there was a lot of firsts, like hip hop mm-hmm. was new, right? I was like nine or 10 when I first heard hip hop. It's like an entirely new form of music that was speaking about things in a way we'd never heard before. And we were coming out of a thing that I missed, you know, officially like punk, but we had like post-punk and new wave also emerging and happening at that same time. And if you're in New York, you're getting access to all of those things simultaneously, right? It's not like one or the other. It's like you're here and you're hearing hip hop and you're there and you're hearing The Cure and it's all happening all around you. And it was incredible. Just so much nearness. And even in the art world, the design world, everything was like popping off. (laughs) I know at the time when I was younger, it probably felt hard at times because some of the things I was interested in weren't popular culture. So if you were like a skateboard kid in a town that was big on football, you're kind of a weirdo, a little bit of an outsider. And if you're like a 15-year-old kid who like thinks Sinead O'Connor is cute, you know, you're like a weirdo. (laughs) But I think some of us, a few of us, were acutely aware, and I'm not sure how we got there, we were acutely aware of this reality that the things we were interested in were going to drive culture forward and were going to become more standard for people, even though at the time it wasn't. 
Mm-hmm. And we just held on to that reality. We're like, no, this stuff we're into is the future. And if people want to laugh at us now, that's fine. We'll be leading the pack later. Mm-hmm. That was something we were aware of. And that made it easier, right? When kids were calling me like a freak. Not to use harsh words here, but like, you listen to Depeche Mode when you're 15 years old. And like, these dudes are like calling you a fag. Like, I mean, just ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know but why like, I knew that was the word that was coming. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Like, you <laughs> know, like, just like dumb chalk stuff. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff we were enduring. Mm-hmm. But I think most people who come up through skateboarding are familiar with this sense of strengthening from being outside of mainstream culture. Like, it just makes you stronger. You know, you find a community of people that are like you. And those friendships are like really tighter. Mm-hmm. Because you suffer together a little bit, you know? Of course, yeah. And how did that culture and finding community end up culminating in an interest in creativity and what it is that you've ultimately found yourself in over the past few decades? I'd be less inclined to call it creativity. It's interesting. I don't think of what I do as terribly creative. Interesting. Okay. I think it's important. I don't want to belittle people in my position who make clothes and have brands and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's important, but I don't know if it's terribly creative. I mean, the creativity comes more in building the infrastructure of the business if you're trying to do something new, right? So my mm-hmm. clothes are fairly simple. It's like a wool shirt, a pair of jeans, you know. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. There's a lot of thought that goes into the graphic nature, things like that. But it's the idea of the business that I think is interesting, right? Like, what were we trying to do with the business? Mm-hmm. And what we were trying to do was build a business that kind of was contemporary, considered interesting and cool, made relevant product that was accepted, but also the business was designed to function responsibly. Kind of a new wrinkle, right? It was like a new addition to like, at the time people were calling it streetwear. I don't really do what we do with streetwear, but coming out of Supreme, it's like, oh, Noah. And we were like, yeah, we want to make cool stuff that resonates with people today and is considered cool, but we want to do it in a way that's responsible. So that was a new idea at the time. So where are we at in timelines now? Because we're already jumping into Supreme and Noah. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the first foray into that sort of space? You know, you mentioned 10 to 21 being very formative times in your life. At what point did that culminate in the decision to make a move into business in that way? Well, so the 10 to 21, you know, those double digits, teenage years or whatever, that's Mm -hmm. when you're formed, right? Of course. Yeah. It was the things I was interested in that led me here. So skateboarding, surfing music, these things, there's a style around them, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. In some cases, there's, I wouldn't call it a uniform, but there's identity markers, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the things I was into were heavily in the world of style. Skateboarding and music both had this like heavy position in style. So that's probably where it began. And then once you start exploring outside of your own little world, once you leave your little hometown and you venture into New York City, you're just going to access things and see things that are going to influence you whether you want them to or not. And then from there, for me, it just became this organic process. It wasn't really considered or thought about. You just were receiving information and translating it and using it. We were big into Stussy, obviously, mm-hmm. which had a huge impact on us because Sean was very much doing the thing that we were looking for that wasn't there yet. He was combining worlds that weren't being combined. And in New York, we just lived that way, right? It was a fairly unique lifestyle where like you'd be at the beach all day surfing and then you'd jump into the city to go to like Nels or Sound Factory. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting life of beach kids going urban at night and listening to hip hop or like house music or whatever. 
And Sean brought a lot of that together in physical form. So it was just like exactly what we were looking for. And it really felt like it represented us perfectly. So that was our first kind of brand connection. Like, oh, this is something that understands us. This is someone who gets us. This is where we exist. And then it grew from there, right? Other things, other brands popped up. And how did the Supreme thing happen? You know, you have to fast forward there to like my 20s. The guy I was talking about earlier, Don, Mm -hmm. he started this brand called Pervert in 1988, basically almost out of high school. He was a good friend of mine. And eventually, a few years into it, I went to work with him. He just needed some support and he needed people around that he knew and trusted who he knew he got what he was doing or whatever. So I went to work with him. This was in Miami Beach. When he decided to split, I decided to come back to New York. And that's when the Supreme conversation started because James, who had previously owned Union, was a customer of Perverts. He knew the brand. He'd heard of me. He kind of knew a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, this Brendan who's coming back from working at Pervert back to New York. So we met, and that's how I ended up at Supreme. That's a pretty epic time in your life as far as operating in the space. And even though you don't necessarily consider creative, it was definitely creating a very big arc. Today, look at how streetwear has infiltrated the entire luxury sector. And you're long before that, but also a part of what that trajectory kind of manifested in. So what are some of your biggest takeaways in terms of the time spent at Supreme? Wow. I mean, look, I, when I started there, it was 96. It was opened as a multi-brand skate shop and was evolving into Supreme the brand. Mm-hmm. And James was already making t-shirts and hats and some sweatshirts and he had a few cut and sew pieces. And I was brought in to help develop more stuff and find factories. I mean, all of it. Mm-hmm. Find fabrics, find factories, find, you know, like we was just like building from scratch kind of. So I learned everything there. Like I learned it all, right? The culture stuff is kind of in you. Mm-hmm. you know, even when you're young, you, know, you might not know how to access it all the time, but you're living the lifestyle organically. So you're really going to know what's going on. Like just because you walk out the door and it's like who your friends are and where you go to dinner, which clubs you go to, you already have all that inside of you. Mm-hmm. Accessing it, learning how to access it at the right time, that's the trick. But that's a natural process. The other stuff, the business stuff, timing. When do you put this out? When do you put that out? How do you operate a business? How do you run a business? I learned a lot there. And obviously James is best in class when it comes to operating retail and just like brand building. Being able to work with James for all those years was incredible because you're just getting a firsthand account of how it's done. (laughs) What are your feelings about having been a part of that genesis and witnessing its overarching progress through the past few decades in terms of where it now exists in the culture versus where it was when you were first existing. And that is the sort of underdog skater kid. It's been fascinating. I mean, I was at Supreme, I think around 15 years on and off because I did two stints there. You know, it's clearly a different world now that we live in and all these things that were underground and now above ground. Mm -hmm. And I guess at my very fundamental core, I'm always looking to do something different or do the mm-hmm. next thing. That can mean a lot of different things, right? It's fascinating to watch that it's become the primary culture. Mm-hmm. It's also a little bit sad for me. Mm, explain. I mean, you know, these are precious things, right? And it's like people who made punk music were demonized, right? And now punk is used as like a TV commercial theme song. You know what I mean? It's hard to be people who kind of were at the front end of something being persecuted for it and then see it become 
a multi-billion dollar industry that anybody can enter and access, at least aesthetically speaking, mm-hmm. without having paid dues. And that goes back to my skateboarding roots, right? There's always this thing of paying you dues and like earning it. The way things work today, I don't want to suggest people don't have to earn it. Of course they do. But it's a little bit different, right? This particular segment is now the mainstream segment. Mm-hmm. It's now the standard of how everyone dresses. That's not something I ever really... I'm never trying to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why I left years ago to do my own thing because I'm always trying to be somewhere else from what mainstream society is doing. And maybe it's not even trying. I think I just organically evolved, right? Mm-hmm. And I think as you get older, you learn so much about what's really going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And this idea of being a young person, when you're young, you think, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna like smoke and drink and I'm rebellious and, die and all this stuff. You're like, you think you're so punk. And then when you grow up, you're like, that's the least punk thing you can do. Because like, you're just funding these fat cats who are actually, they're taking your money and they're poisoning you at the same time. And you think you're a rebel. And meanwhile, you just made the tobacco industry richer, the alcohol industry richer, the oil industry richer, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And you think you're a rebel because of aesthetics. I think when I got a little bit older, that all kind of dawned on me. And I was like, oh, it's, 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 it has nothing to do with how you look. Like, what do you do? What are your real actions in life? Right? Well, that's a really interesting segue into Noah. First and foremost, I'd love to hear about that kind of moment of revelation where you decided that it was no longer the right fit and you wanted to create something of your own and what you wanted that to look like. Because a lot of what you've spoken to in terms of Noah seems to exist at this intersection of lifestyle and fashion. The fashion directly correlates to the experiences lived in it, right? I mean, skate culture, you've talked a lot about music, surf, and all those other fun things seem to come into play. So let's expand upon that moment where you decided that you wanted to do your own thing and how that kind of took shape in your mind as to what it would be. I mean, there was no single moment. It was Mm -hmm. this like really long arc of education, the kind of like visual stuff, like what's it look like? What does like cool stuff look like? Mm -hmm. That's kind of easy, right? If you grew up in New York, you're just inundated with information your entire life. You can access that at any given time and be like, oh, this is a great time in history. Let's do something that looks like that. That's the easy part. The things that really entered into it that are much harder to wrap into it are, okay, how do we run a responsible business? Mm-hmm. For a very long time, I lived in this dual world. Like I said earlier, where like, I grew up surfing and going to the beach and on the Great South Bay and outside. But I also loved New York and what it had to offer. I was heavily influenced by a lot of outdoor stuff, you know, things like Patagonia and what Yvonne Chenard was doing. That was like the most punk thing in the world to me. This guy was building a business that on paper says it cares about the environment and the world around them. And business just doesn't really function that way in capitalism. Business is designed to make as much money as possible and not really consider the destruction it leaves in its way. You know, like when I was a kid in the 80s, it didn't matter what you did. If you got rich, you were a god. Nobody cared how you got there. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were a hero. You were a superhero. To hear people talking about business in a way where it was like, no, it matters what you do. It matters how you get there. It matters the destruction you leave behind you and amassing your wealth. That was revolutionary for me. So I was really interested in that. And that was a long arc, right? That was mm-hmm. two decades of learning about the environment and business and how business is a big part of the problem we have and all that. And then trying to apply that to my own business when I was launching. There wasn't so much an aha moment 
as there was this like slow build to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always knew I would do something. I just didn't know when I'd be ready. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when I got married and we were talking about having a child, quite honestly, I think that was probably it. I was already feeling a little bit antsy about the size of this organization I was working in and where that was headed. Like, how punk are you really if you're like that big? And like, you know, like, mm-hmm. so there's all that, like, you know, under the covers. But then up here, it was like, well, I'm going to have a child. And I don't know if I want to make clothes in China anymore. Or, you know, all those kinds of things came up. And can we be part of a solution rather than part of a problem with our own business? There was a build. And then that was the thing that pushed me over the hill was this idea that I was going to have a child. And when that comes into play, you really see the future differently. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. And I know people probably say that all the time, but it was very true for me that I saw the world very differently when I knew I was going to bring a person into it. I want to be part of a better future. It resonates with this friend of mine because when mm-hmm. he left, you know, he was going to be a star and he just walked away from it and he went and led a better life. He really did. It's crazy. He's super Christian, but not churchy Christian. Mm-hmm. He left and walks the streets like Jesus. He doesn't have a job. He helps You're people. You're saying doesn't as in present day? Never did. Once he left, he never had a job again. Wow, okay. He's been traveling on a bike. He didn't have a phone for 20 years. He lived like Jesus. That was what he decided to do. He was going to live as close to the biblical Jesus as he could. And he did, and has done it ever since. And the fascinating thing about that is he's not like this dirty, scroungy, homeless guy. He's really intelligent. He's ridden his bike all across America. He's been all over the world. He's helped people in Africa. It's this fascinating thing that he's done. And I, you know, that resonates with me as well. And I think that was not his example, but we were both kind of in the same mindset when we were kids. Mm-hmm. I think I see it now more clearly. Like he chose to do that. I chose to start a business that in theory is meant to operate more responsibly in the hopes that we can lead by example and affect some change in the future. You have spoken to things like honesty and education as far as consumer behavior and, and using those things as vehicles for making real impact or creating change. And I was curious as to hear a little bit more about that concept and how you see it and what you're hoping to achieve through it. Like, I think fundamentally people, right? They're called consumers. It's, it's a terrible word. They're people. People who buy things. I just don't believe they really fully have the full story. And it's, it's not their fault. I'm not sitting here saying like the general public is not already doing with that. Everyone's just so busy trying to survive and like, mm-hmm. get by and like be a part of society and everything else. That some of these important details have been really missed. And I think it is a little bit by design. I think industry and politics and things really doesn't want people too informed and too educated. It can really change the way money is spent and where wealth is distributed. So my view is if you're going to buy something, just make sure that everyone who had a hand in making it, delivering it, and getting it to you is living a reasonable life, is being paid enough to like pay their rent or pay their mortgage and feed their kids and go to school and get an education. And right now, that is not the case at all. We are far more poor than we are rich as a society. There's a lot more poor people. And even people in the middle... Middle class. Middle class, if they actually had to pay for everything out of pocket, they couldn't. Like the middle class, everything is borrowed, right? A mortgage is money borrowed. A car is loan is money borrowed. You know, school loan, it's all money borrowed, right? You don't actually have the money. And you end up paying more for those goods because you're paying interest on them. 
this entire system is like built to create people who are really just kind of like, we're like human ATM. So they're just taking money away from us constantly. Money we don't even have. But the credit system allows us to buy things anyway. Mm-hmm. But you're dead your whole life. So through the lens of what you're doing with Noah, how do you feel as though you're able to educate people or arm them with information that can somehow create actual change or make an impact? I mean, there's a few things we do. Obviously, our clothes aren't cheap, right? Uh-huh, so like uh-huh. in the current state of our economics and our society, there's a lot of people who can't afford our products. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. They can afford some, maybe like a beanie, a hat, a t-shirt, or whatever, which is also part of the reason we operate the way we operate, right? Like, uh-huh. There's some things that you can afford if you don't have a ton of money. But if you really want to buy something nice, here's like a cashmere shirt or a suit or whatever. We like the idea of having a, a large age range and different people of economic statuses being able to shop with us, which also goes against the industry standards. But usually you're at a price point and that's it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A $4,000 jacket, your t-shirt is $800. We kind of want to break down some of that stuff. But our, our, our real purpose is to create products that we think are really great quality, Incredible cloth, bought from reputable mills where people can make a decent living, created in factories where people are paid fairly, have health insurance, have vacation time, and so on and so on. That's how we make our decisions. That's how we make our products. And then we try to educate the consumer population about their role in that. It's a two-way street. Companies have to operate more responsibly, and then the consumers also have to operate responsibly. Otherwise... None of this matters, right? So we, we talk about how you spend your money and what it means. We tell our customers, if you're buying something for $5, you're probably contributing to somebody somewhere not being treated fair. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a pie-in-the-sky dream to be able to make a big impact, but you know, you've know you got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm, um, of course. Well, you've also mentioned you're encouraging people to buy less, keep longer which is an interesting take for someone in your particular position and obviously entails leaving money on the table along the way. So how do you kind of balance that fulcrum of being a profitable business with growth while also achieving these sort of more sustainable practices or responsible practices that you're talking about? I don't know. When I have that full answer, I guess I'll tell you because we're (laughs) in process, right? So there's no guarantee that Noah will be around in 10 years. We don't Mm -hmm. know. It's somewhat of an experiment. And it's been working so far, which is great. But there's no guarantee that tomorrow will be the same as today. Consumer behavior changes. People shift and change. What's viewed as a status symbol is always evolving. So we don't really know. We're just doing what we believe is the right thing to do and leading with that. And I guess to some degree with fingers crossed, right? Like I'm not some (laughs) business guy who like Mm -hmm. has it all figured out. Of course. Where would I really want to be? I mean, I think that takes away a lot of the fun and the organic kind of like nature of what we're doing because mm-hmm. we always say we just want things to be fun and interesting at least. We don't want to just put something out to put it out. We want it all to be interesting. Otherwise, it's like, what's the point? What are we contributing if not? Because the product, it's great. I love what we make, but I'm not a yogi. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Wow. Inventing, you know, the way a dress sits on a woman's body. You know, mm-hmm. like. It's shirts and pants and jackets. And we find the interest in presentation and the way we talk about our business and things like that. We just want to say, let's show it to people and let's have an interesting idea behind it. Absolutely. And you've been credited for the revival of J. Crew uh, since your appointment as the creative director of Men's. 
what does that look like in terms of how it differs or any similarities that you really bring over into your work there? I mean, there's definitely similarities. I grew up with J. Crew. It was always a part of my life. You know, in the 80s, it was massive for me. It was a smaller business back then, but if you went into someone's house and saw a J. Crew catalog, I'm just like, like we're on the same page. Very similar to the music thing at the time. So it's always been there for me. And there are a lot of similarities in the thought process, right? Just wanting to make a really great product. The difference between Noah and J. Crew in that space is obviously J. Crew is a much bigger organization. So the resources are different and their ability to make a great product at a great price is phenomenal. I believe Noah is a tremendous value add because we use the best cloths in the world. And if you buy something that's going to last forever, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. But you get paid for it. Like we're in a different space financially. Where J. Crew has such incredible resources and the volume's a little bit bigger. So we can make an incredible product over there at a really accessible price, which I love. I think mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. And I think what I do there outside of design again, is impact culture, company culture, internal culture, the way we think about business, the way we think about our relationship to consumers, the way we think about our manufacturing practices. So I can be a part of those conversations, again, to make change for the future. Of course. The greatest thing about J.Crew was they were already on that path before I got there, which is not something that people really are aware of. Yeah, Um, no, I didn't know. They don't really talk about it, but mm-hmm. like they spent years. I mean, they were like on an eight-year journey before I even got there to make better products with better materials. They buy a lot of things like regenerative cottons and recycled nylons. Like our swimming program is all recycled nylon. They were already there. So it was really easy for me to slide in and just be supportive of that mm-hmm. and further those conversations. You know, nothing's perfect, especially with big companies, but they're definitely moving in the right direction and pretty quickly. I just think you have to dig to know about it because they don't really talk about it. Well, I also think that a lot of larger companies who have been around before practices were improved upon have to be careful to not lean too much on messaging and be wary of claims versus measurables because otherwise you're just going to get taken down, right? I mean, at this point, there are improvements to a system, but nobody's necessarily done it perfectly just yet. So you have to kind of test the waters in terms of how much you speak to it versus just letting the work be itself. So it makes a great deal of sense what you're saying. Look, there never will be perfect in business. Mm -hmm. Business is a destructive practice, Mm -hmm. right? We use resources. It's destructive. It really is. Like even Patagonia, right? They are the gold star. But the amount of polar fleece they make is insane. It's done with recycled bottles. Check. That's awesome. But if you put it in the wash, it's going to release tons of microplastics. What do you think about that? You know what I mean? Like it's complicated. So what I boil it down to is what is the intention? What are you trying to do? What are your goals? Where are you going? Are you making decisions with good intention? And there are still some businesses that make decisions with bad intention. There's still some businesses who know they're doing wrong and hide it where they fund bad science, you know, like, so that's the difference now. It's going to take a long time for big businesses to be better than they are. It's the ones who are trying to be better, but I feel like you should support. And the ones that you know who aren't trying to be better, you shouldn't support. I'm assuming that's a big part of how you decide who you want to collaborate with, because that's another thing you've done a a great deal of, both at NOAA as well as at J.Crew. Yeah, we've said no to some projects, quite Mm -hmm. frankly, that could have been great for us. Because when we got under the hood, we just saw some things we didn't like. 
And again, it's intention. I don't expect these larger companies to be perfect. We couldn't work with anybody, right? If everybody had to be perfect. Of course, but, yeah. Like, well, where are you going? What are you doing? What are you working on? That's what's important to me. If you take Puma, for instance, Puma is interesting because one, they're really fun to work with. They're like open-minded and, and they're interested in new ideas, which oftentimes you go find with larger organizations, but they're open to things, which is cool. But they've kept some interesting things in place. I mean, the first shoe we put out with them was a made in Japan shoe. They don't make all their shoes in Japan. We're not making all the shoes with them in Japan, but we can make some of the shoes in Japan. It's a high quality. It's a premium suede. The factory is a little better. The people are treated better, so on and so forth. So like, it's these little moments that you inject that get you further along. Right? Uh-huh. You can't go from zero to 60. You got to pass through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to get there. So that's how we're operating. Uh-huh. This slow drip of change over time. I mean, that's kind of the only way you can do it, right? We're talking a lot about values and intentions. And obviously, again, music, skate, surf, culture, these are all things you draw inspiration from. But even within or outside of fashion, just in terms of the world, where do you generally find yourself drawing the most inspiration from? For the product itself? I mean, if we're talking about product, what are we talking about more just like generally? I feel like your commodity sort of transcends product. I think a lot of it is, you know, it's identity, it's values, it's lifestyle. The product seems to be the dressing to the actual commodity, which is this culture that you really create around you. So what are the inspirations in the cultivating of that culture that you have? Look, I'm inspired by that kind of like outsiders and outcasts. Uh-huh. That's it's constant conversation for me. And it, it's funny because visually today, <laughs> everyone looks like an outsider and an outcast, mm-hmm. but that kind of makes you not an outsider because everybody looks the same. Uh-huh. It's this really weird, strange thing that's happened where like people who look conservative like the weirdo outcasts now. <laughs> you know, I don't want to focus too much on their visual look. It's more like, how are you thinking, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. We've been talking a lot about Shannon O'Connor since her passing, and she was right. She went on stage and ripped the Pope's picture because she was saying the Catholic Church was looking the other way at abusing children. And she was right. Mm-hmm. She was demonized. She was destroyed for that action. And today we know she was right. Mm-hmm. I gravitate to people who are kind of on the outside because I, I always feel like they're usually onto something. They're usually right about something. And they're brave enough to talk about it or act on it or whatever it is. And that's pretty rare. So I get inspired a lot by people who are just kind of like on their own, mm-hmm. doing their own thing. Well, that's a beautiful segue into our final and most obvious question, which is, what is contemporary now? I guess I don't even know the definition of contemporary anymore, right? Because you could say what's contemporary in the sense of what's popular. I lean towards what's kind of next as contemporary, like where we're going, but I don't know if that's the right way to think of it. I think we generally view it through the framework of the makings of the now. So what makes up this moment to you? What do you think is happening in this moment, be it unique to this time we're in or just an occurrence of the time we're in? Um, There's so many different ways to say it. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is like what I think makes the now isn't necessarily a positive thing. Okay. Like I think we're in this hyper consumer information age that I think 20 years ago felt like it was going to be really great and special. Oh, you're going to be able to access information like all day long. It's going to be incredible. You can know everything all at once. But I think the actual result of that has been everything in the most slimmest way possible. And you know nothing deeply. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the world we live in. I mean, I don't want to be like 
Super Debbie Downer or whatever, because there's so much beauty happening at the same time. But contemporary to me means popular culture. Right. And the popular culture right now, I feel like is is a bit kind of naive and to some degree shallow. Again, which brings me back to like the outsiders and the outcasts who aren't a part of the popular mainstream culture who might be reading books. You know, like teenagers <laughs> putting their phones down, which is the thing, right? There's these kids in New York who twice a week get together for the afternoon after school without their phones. They made a conscious decision to like, we leave our phones home and just go hang. And like, that's bizarre in today's world. That's what I want to be contemporary five and 10 years from now, if you ask me again. Like, what's contemporary now? Oh, we're back to being in the world again and being present and not living in our phones and on our computers and everything else. But currently, what feels contemporary is kind of um, consumer hypermedia affected individuals, <laughs> you know? Okay. It's not a great trajectory. I want to break the rule and sneak in one last question on the wings of what it is that you're saying and find out how it is that you achieve that balance. You clearly have multiple jobs. You run your own business. Where is your disconnect? Where are you not living that sort of flawed aspect of contemporary culture when it comes to being ever connected and somehow more present? Well, I think I probably fail on a daily basis. I certainly wouldn't suggest that I am separate from society, okay. right? I'm evaluating it as part of the problem, not as like, oh, you guys over there are bad and I've got it all figured out. I, <laughs> I sit out all day, every day. But I can say that one of the benefits, and this is something that I, I speak about often, of leaving an organization where you're not in charge, let's say, and where your value structure isn't like accepted mm-hmm. and moving into a space where you're creating your own value structure, mm-hmm. right? There's a trade-off. I'm not rich, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. if I said it's a pretty might be rich. That's a trade-off, but I have more time. Mm-hmm. I my own universe and time was important in that universe. Personal time when you're working for others sometimes isn't important to them. They want all of your time and all of your attention and all of your energy for their business, right? But we value time. So I knew one, I was having a child and I wanted to be present for her. I spend a lot of time with my daughter. I drive to school in the morning. I see her at night before she goes to bed. I'm not the guy who gets home after she's asleep. I'm there. I'm like reading with her and all that kind of stuff. I can run in the mornings before work. There's times when I surf in the mornings during the week before work, which is like this monumental luxury if you're a surfer right the ability to be able to go surf on a tuesday with this way it's it's huge and like a lot of people don't have that so we just built it into the system we said this is important to us and you know i think if you work here people get to take advantage of that belief structure right like we're not judging people if they need time off we're not mad at them if they are like hey you know what i've got the opportunity to go to Mexico for four days. I'm going to leave Wednesday night and Thursday morning. It's like, okay, cool. Like, you know, What's work's done. I don't care. You know, there's the business owner side, which says the work has to get done. But, you know, how important is the money? That's this true. is the fundamental crux of things. I know a lot of really wealthy people who are miserable. So if you get to do the things you love to do, haven't you kind of won? You know, like, isn't it okay? I mean, obviously you need to be able to put food on the table and pay rent and all that kind of stuff. But if you can do that and have time, the extra money on top of that might not be that necessary. If I was rich and I couldn't surf, I'd be miserable. 
would be a disaster for me, right? If I was rich and I couldn't see my daughter, I'd be a deadly dad. It sounds ultra conservative when I say this. Not at all. It sounds to me what I consider contemporary. I think a lot of the things that you value enough to design your life around are what more and more people are waking up to their own needs to have, especially in a post-pandemic sort of culture. And I think that not only does it resonate, but it also leaves us with a lot to think about. You've been very succinct and a lot of what you're saying makes perfect sense in a very broadly applicable way to how people are experiencing life today. So thank you. Well, that's good to hear. These conversations for me are really quite emotional. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lifetime of thinking about these things and trying to put them into practice Mm -hmm. And, and failing too, right? Like you fail and you don't really know if what you're doing has any meaning at all to the larger world because you're like trying to keep your business going. And do all well, the things. Yeah. Yeah. Close delivered by September 1st or whatever it is. Sure if it's all getting through or not. So I do appreciate people like you who want to talk about these things mm-hmm. because not everybody does. So it's nice to know that there's people like you out there looking into these things. Thank you. And thank you again for taking the time today. It was a really good conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. <laughs>